Good morning. Let's come back together. I'd like to also welcome those that are watching online and those that are watching out in the gym. We have a lot of different locations this morning, and it's good to be worshiping together. Um, I do love that the kids are in here. We have a, a couple family services throughout the year. Kids under under 10, so 9 and younger, raise your hands for me, okay? Raise your hands. Okay, we have a few of them, okay? Um, what? Why do we celebrate Easter? One of the kids, answer me. Because Jesus rose again on Easter. That's the, that's in a nutshell why we're here, right? Is that worth celebrating? Yeah, it's one of those events that changes everything. We're used to that, right? We have events that change everything in life. Now, when we think of that, we can think of, of a variety of things. Things like events or statements like, we're just going to shut down for two weeks to flatten the curve. And life is different. Um, things like, oh, oh. I don't think that engine's repairable. And life is different. Things like, oh, I'm sorry, we're going to have to let you go. We just don't have enough work. And life is different. Now, we think in the negative. My, my first thought when I was thinking through that question was all these negative things. But in reality, there's a lot of positive things, right? Oh, you're hired. You'd be perfect for that position. Oh, you're approved for that house. Yes, I'll marry you. One little statement that changes the rest of your life, right? At least it should change the rest of your life. And, and when we think of these events, each of them could change our lives. Or if we ignore them, if we say, oh, you know, that's not important. Yes, I'll marry you. Oh, great. And if we went on living the exact same way before that statement, there's problems. Trust me, there's problems. Because you're not going to be single anymore. Your life is different. The resurrection, Easter, the cross, and the empty tomb are one of those events. They are the ultimate event that changes our lives or should change our lives, that change everything. And it's, and it's not just that we're celebrating that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, that is amazing and that is worth celebrating, but it's not just the intellectual thing of how can someone that's dead come to life. That's not the only thing we're celebrating today. We are celebrating that that event changes our lives. And through that, through the cross and the empty tomb, Jesus was was rebirthing us, reconciling us to the Father, and giving us new life. And we can look at Easter even just as fire insurance. I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I don't have to worry about it. But God wanted so much more through Easter. He wanted so much more through the cross and the empty tomb He wants to come in and infiltrate our lives and change us from the inside out and change every moment, not just at the moment of salvation, but from there on. He wants to renew us in new life and make that possible. I want to start by reading the story of the resurrection and then we'll jump to Titus, our text for this morning. But it's appropriate to start by reading the event that changed everything, the before and after. Before this, Christ is still in the grave and people are mourning and people are in despair. And the disciples think that the Savior who they had put their trust in is gone. And the disillusionment they must have felt, the frustration, the anger, the pain, the embarrassment they must have felt, changed on Sunday morning. 
in Luke chapter 24. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third, and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. Someone runs in and says, someone rose from the dead. We, our first inclination would not be to believe it. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The event that we celebrate this morning, the event that I hope changes us from here on out, And so this morning is a reminder. This morning is a chance to celebrate, to remember, to worship, and just to be reminded of the work that Jesus has done. We're going to be looking at Titus chapter 3 this morning, and and we're going to continue our series through Titus. But the text for this morning is a perfect Easter text, because Paul has been talking to Titus about how to live your faith and how to live out your Christianity in real, everyday life. That it's not just enough to know it, we've got to live it. And he gets to Titus chapter 3, and he begins to deal with, okay, how do we get our relationships right with people around us? How do we get our relationships right, our horizontal relationships right in our communities and interact well with others? And he says, this is how you do it. Remind yourself of the cross and the empty tomb. Remind yourself of salvation. Remind yourself how God has changed you and this event should change everything. And really this morning as we go through the text, we're just going to look at three major points. What were we before the work of the cross? Who are we now because of the cross? And how then should we live in light of the cross? We're going to look through that in Titus chapter 3. So turn there with me. If you don't have a Bible this morning, underneath the seats will be a black one like this somewhere. And in fact, if you don't own a Bible, please take that home as our gift to you, a chance for you to have God's Word, and we'll be in Titus. And if you're wondering where that is, it's on page 998 in this Bible. If you have a different Bible, don't go to 998. But in this Bible, 998, because I want you to see that what we're talking about this morning is right out of God's Word. We're not making it up. Even though this sounds like an incredible story, this really happened And God revealed it to us through his word. In Titus chapter 3, 1 and 2, we start with two verses that talk about these horizontal relationships. Remind them, and that means to continually remind, to remember, even when they're sick of hearing it again, remind them again to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, those two verses are very practical, right? 
This is how we should treat each other. This is how relationships should work with government, with unbelievers, with believers. And this list is, is quite staggering. If we did everything on this list, that's a group I'd like to be part of. That, that's a group that is living for God. But, and I want to come back to those two verses at the end, because the very next word in, in verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish. And that for there, the idea is you can get these relationships right because of what he's going to talk about. And so we're going to take the text a little bit out of order. We're going to come back to one and two at the end. But I want to start with verse three. And our first point is to to remember what we were before the cross. What we were before the cross and in the empty tomb, and I'm speaking of the work of the cross, before we believed and put our trust in Jesus Christ, before we repented of our sins, where were we? And, and at the end, you'll see how all this relates to getting our horizontal relationships right. But what Paul is saying here is we've got to get the vertical right first. We've got to understand what God has done for us, and then we can learn how to love each other well. Love God has to come first, and then we can love others well. And so in verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slave to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. I sort of like the first list better, one and two. I, I want to live in that group. I don't want to live in the group of number three, but what Paul is doing is he's describing our state before God saved us. Our state before God reached out with his love and reached out with the act on the cross of paying our sins before he saved us, where are we at? And this is a, this is an important reminder for us to even appreciate Easter, to even appreciate God's grace and appreciate the cross. What were we before the cross? And he gives this list uh, of just incredibly tough things. And, and he's, he's talking to Titus, who's ministering in Crete, an island of really rough people. And so I can picture Titus, it would be easy to start looking down on people. If you're a believer, a mature believer, and people around you are just jerks, sometimes it's easy to think they're jerks, right? And, and, but that is not how God sees them. And so I think Paul here is, is gently instructing Titus of how to look at the people around him. Even when it's hard. Even when they act like idiots. Even when they cut them off on the freeway. Okay, maybe they don't cut them off on the freeway. Oh, chariots, you never know. But we live in a world of some dark things. We live in a fallen, broken world. I would bet everyone in this room was frustrated with people this, this week sometime. Fair? And it's because we're a fallen people. And so Paul says, okay, let's think of you. And actually, he uses the word we, he includes it in it. And so he reminds him, so were you, so was I. We were fallen and we were broken. It's important to understand this, what we just see, see in verse 3 here, this is our natural state. Every one of us is born a sinner. We don't teach kids how to sin. We don't teach kids how to lie. They are very capable of picking that up on their own somehow. And, and be, it's because we are born sinners and, and there is nothing we can do to break that innate sin nature. And, and we start by being honest with ourselves and saying that's what we are. And, and if we look at this list, 
we can see ourselves all over this list. For we ourselves were once foolish. And the idea is ignoring the truth. No spiritual understanding. Our sin nature actually blinds us to the truth. It blinds us to the truth that we need God. It blinds us to the truth that we are sinners. And you may be listening today saying, well, I'm not a sinner. And that's your sin nature blinding you to that. Because if we look inside, we know we all are. We know we all have junk in our lives. And so, before Christ, we are foolish. Before the cross, we can't understand, we can't save ourselves. We think our good works will do it. We don't understand the impact of our sin and that we have to pay the penalty for our sin. Then he says, you're disobedient. In relationship to God, in relationship to authority over us, And really, if we think of our fallen nature, our sin nature, we want to do what we want to do. I really don't want someone else telling me what I want to do. Because I want to do what I want to do. And, and, and we all fight this. We all chafe against authority of someone telling us what to do. Again, back to parenting. Do your kids love it when you say no? No. Do we as, now, as adults, do we love it when someone tells us no? No, we just hide it a little better. We, or, or we argue it a little better and fight it a little harder. The verse goes on to say, you are led astray by the falsehood of this world, by the systems of this world. This world is saying, live for yourself. Live for your own pleasure. You're basically good. Do what you want. YOLO, you only live once. So go out and live life. That is the, the argument of this world. And the argument of this world now is that this message of the gospel is backwards and somehow um, not true, somehow weird and destructive to society. That's being led astray when we start to marginalize the very thing that could help society. He goes on to say, okay, you're foolish, disobedient, thanks, we're doing well, led astray. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. And when we think of our our fallen state, when we think of getting involved in sin, even as believers, when we give ourselves over to sin, it really is slavery to passions and pleasures. Because once we go down a path, once we start down a path of, of seeking our own pleasure, following and giving in to our desires, it is hard to switch gears. Because we need more. We need more stimulus to be excited about that. We need more for the endorphins to come. We need, we need to somehow elevate what we're doing because we are seeking satisfaction in flesh that cannot satisfy. And so we keep looking for the next rush. And, and literally this terminology is perfect. We are enslaved to sin. And we know this. Someone who is angry and fighting an angry life keeps being angry and they get angrier as they try to fight their anger. Someone who is struggling with purity, it's more and more to try to satisfy those desires. Someone who is struggling with alcohol or drugs or self-medicating to try to escape more and more to try to do that. And nothing satisfies because all of those things are temporal. This is a description of where we all were. So before we start thinking how good we are this morning, we're starting with the bad news. Blaise Pascal said this, When the passions become masters, they are vices. 
and they give their nutriment to the soul and the soul nourishes itself upon it and is poisoned. Our passions become masters and they do give nutrients to the soul, but those nutrients are poison and destroy us. And so Paul says we're slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice. And so our our natural man, our natural person tends to to think of others in how we can use them and and how whether or not they're satisfying my needs. And we can get angry. And and malice refers to starting to think evil of people and ill will of people. And we dwell on it. And that's where sin begins to lead. The next one there, envy. Always wanting more. But never satisfied with what we have dissatisfied with where we're at in our job, in our relationships, in our money, in our status. Because others always have more. I can see it on social media. Their lives are perfect. And so our natural man struggles with envy. And then he sums it all up. This is getting, you know, the cycle is getting harder and harder. You are hated by others and hating one another. Because if you're always living for self, people are going to hate you eventually, despise you. And then we hate others because they aren't living for me. They're living for themselves. And it's an unworkable system, an untenable system. Hate multiplies and it multiplies fast. And so the first point is to remember what we were before the cross, the work of the cross, the empty tomb. We were lost. We were dead spiraling on this list. And we can add more to this list because as you read this list, doesn't it describe the world? Doesn't it describe what we see on TV, what we hear in friends, in circles of friends that don't know Christ? Because there's no hope, because we're just trying to satisfy with our own efforts, it will always spiral down this path. Even the safest of sins that doesn't affect others leads to this path. Because all sins violate the commandments of the creator of the universe. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And we've got to own that. We've got to say, yes, my heart is deceitful above all things. My heart left to its own devices, not much good or not any good. And we have to own that there's consequences for that. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so our heart is wicked before the cross and before Easter, before the empty tomb. We have sinned and that is our natural state and we will keep sinning and that will keep multiplying. And the consequence for sinning against an infinite God who is all powerful, who is all righteous and all holy, the consequence must be that that sin is eliminated, which results in our death. So that's where we are before the cross. Dead in our trespasses and sins, unable to save ourselves, rightfully bearing the consequences and penalties for our sin. And so Jesus died as fully man to pay that penalty, to show a different path, the end to sin. See, the things in verse 3, what we were before the cross, they necessitated the cross because we can't save ourselves. We can't pay for that sin. They necessitated the cross unless God was the kind of God that would just let us rot and die. 
Our things necessitated the cross. My sin made it necessary. And I start here with a little bit more sobering thought because we need to think about that this Easter. We need to understand the gravity of the situation to understand how great the change is and how great the gift of salvation was. So the list in verse 3 should help us remember the magnitude of God's grace to feel the glorious weight of it. Praise God, the text doesn't end at verse 3. And the very first word of verse 4, I would highlight and underline whatever you feel comfortable with in your Bible, but. And that says a change is coming. But God changed everything. And so we start in verse 4, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And boom, we have an event that changes everything. Jesus came, fully God and fully man, lived a perfect life, deserved no punishment, and hung on the cross, taking yours and my punishment for verse 3, for all those things. And on the third day, rose again. And so number two, the, the, the second section, verses 4 through 7, we're, we're remembering what we are because of the cross. What we are now because of the cross and the empty tomb. And, and I've just got to be straight up, I'm speaking to those that have repented and given their life to Jesus. Because that's when the cross applies to us. So this doesn't just go to everyone. It's available to everyone. But when we repent, when we give our lives to Jesus, now this second point applies to us. We are to remember what we are now because of the cross and the empty tomb. There's a couple thoughts as, as, we, as we look through this. The first is the cross and the empty tomb were God's idea and solely his work. They were out of his goodness, out of his kindness and love for us. And, and this should make us smile and this should make us celebrate. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Why did, why did God send Jesus? Why did Jesus endure the cross? Why did he go through the, the punishment and the torture? He did it because God is good, or that, that can be translated kindness. He's infinitely kind and loving. And so when we say God loves you and so he sent his son to die for you, that's not a silly statement. That's not just something we want to put on a coffee cup. That is over and over in Scripture. The very act of the cross proves his love. And proves his kindness. Because verse 3, what do we deserve? Nothing. We deserve death. But God stepped in in his goodness and loving kindness. He saved us. And I love even the next phrase. Not because of, the, of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And so when, when I say that these, the, the cross and the empty tomb were God's idea and solely his work, nothing you and I have done earns it. There is no way we can be good enough to somehow earn God's favor and say, yes, Jesus, Jesus did this for me because of what I did, because I'm good, because I went to church enough, because I gave out enough food packets to people in need. Nothing we do earns God's salvation. 
It is solely his work and his idea. Because before we're saved, we're verse 3. We're dead. And, and, and even the things we try to do are, are filtered through impure motives and, and just sinful ways. And so God said, it's not up to you. Praise God it's not up to us, by the way. Praise God it's his work. And, and he already has done it and already fulfilled it. And he looks at us in his love and kindness and says, I'm going to choose to save you. And I'm going to choose to send my son. And you know what? You just have to accept his gift of salvation. Repent and have faith in him because nothing you do is going to earn it. Now, think of a baby here for a minute. We have a couple of newborns. We have a bunch of newborns. Um, when, when a baby is born, how well do they do at feeding themselves? They don't. How well they, do they do at caring for themselves? They can't. And, and, and I think that's a picture of, as a baby, we do everything for them, a picture of God's salvation to us. He does it all for us. The difference being we weren't born yet. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And then we were reborn because of his work. Mom and dad do that because they love that baby. Because they care for that baby. And that's why God sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross. And so the cross and the empty tomb were God's idea and solely his work. And then we get to the rest of verse 5, that when we believe, we are not only given new life, but we are renewed. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, and there's another one of the word buts that changes everything. It's not our works because we can't earn it, but according to his own mercy. And mercy there means not giving someone what they deserve. So verse 3, we deserve death, we deserve punishment. Mercy says, I'm not going to do that because I have a different way. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And we see two gifts there. We see the washing of regeneration. And the washing there refers to a cleansing of our hearts. An in, inward cleansing where Jesus is, because of his work on the cross, because he's paid for our sins, now he is giving us his forgiveness. God is forgiving those sins. He is washing them away. He is cleansing them because he has paid the price of those. And so the washing of regeneration is the idea of new birth. At that point, we become saved. We are new creatures, new creations in Jesus Christ. But then the next word is there, and this is renewal, and this is why our our theme today is renewed. The next verse says it didn't stop there. But rather, it's an ongoing renewal of your life, of every part of your life. So Jesus wants us but we are still dead in our trespasses and sins, although he saves us and makes us alive. We still have all these old ways and all this junk in our lives. The renewal says, I'm going to redecorate. I'm going to re, and, and the word actually has the idea of renovation. That God comes in and completely renovates our lives and changes our lives so we can live for him moving forward. This is amazing. This is good news because if we think of salvation just as, ha, it's a one and done and I'm good, then we're still alone the rest of our lives. We have no way to live for Jesus. But the cross and the empty tomb, the salvation that God gave us, wants to renew us and renovate our lives in an ongoing fashion. This is what we would call sanctification. 
where Jesus is changing us. I have a couple pictures. Can we go to those pictures? I love before and after pictures. We, we renovated our house, um, took a, a short time. This isn't our house, but I, I didn't have before pictures of our house. It was a while ago, um, before digital. I know some of you are like, there was before digital? Um, <laughs> But I love renovation, and we, we, we maybe took 15 years to renovate our house. But um, I just some before and after pictures, right? Kitchen on the left, kitchen on the right. A little bit of a difference? Now, does that affect life going forward? Absolutely. Here's another one. Kitchen on the left. I think this was from a flipping house. <laughs> um, and the kitchen on the left is a mess. It's been destroyed, as many abandoned homes are. Kitchen on the right is the after. Now, I love the next one. It's the same house. Well, okay, they rebuilt it completely. (laughs) They renovated it completely. I think this is a great picture of the word renewed. Because Jesus comes in and he doesn't leave a lot. Because what we had was verse 3. Instead, he changes us completely. He rebuilds. He renews and restores and gives us a life that we can continue living in from here forward in a way that is pleasing to him. So think renovation when you think renewed. Jesus bought the house and now he's changed it. And we need that. He renews our heart, cleansing us from sin, helping us follow him. He renews our mind in Romans 12, 1 and 2, giving us a new renovated way of thinking that's completely different from verse 3 status. He renews our actions and our motivation, which is where we'll come back to in verses 1 and 2, to say, you don't act like the world anymore. I have changed you. I have renovated you. I have renewed you. The Holy Spirit is at work in the life of the believer. Now, these things happen simultaneously. We're, we're given new life, and then, we're, then the renovation happens like that and, and because we're a new creature, and then the rest of our lives, the sanctification, we're growing that and growing in our walk with God. But praise God, he doesn't just save us. Praise God, he changes us. Verse 6 is part of this. We're changed by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the wording there is a similar description to Pentecost we see in Acts chapter 2, where where God gives his Holy Spirit to live within us, to indwell us, to help us live renewed lives. What that means is whatever we are facing, the Holy Spirit is still renewing us to face that and still with us to face that. In fact, it says, whom he poured out on us richly or generously. The Holy Spirit is enough for whatever you're facing. He's more than enough for whatever you're facing. And this rebirth and this renewal is what the resurrection assures us of. It's what it's a picture of, right? So Jesus Jesus on the cross taking our sins on him, that's verse 3. He's embodying, verse 3, what we were before. And then the resurrection, Sunday morning, the empty tomb. He's showing us what it means to be reborn and renewed. We were dead. Jesus died carrying our sin. Because Jesus was resurrected from carrying our sins, we are renewed from being dead in our sins. We died with Christ. 
we rise with Christ because He was there in our place. And finally, the the last part of what we are now because of the cross, um, the next verse there, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We then have a new standing as part of God's family. Being justified, the idea of justified, it's a legal term that says this is taken care of. This sin that was there, the, the payment that you should have to make, that's been taken care of. It's a legal statement of paid in full. And we are covered in Jesus' righteousness. By his grace, it says, we're getting something we don't deserve. We don't deserve his righteousness. But then more than that, the second part of that, if we come to Christ and repent and give our lives to him, it says we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. In a family, who are the heirs? The children. And, and what this is saying, this is terminology that says God adopts us into his family. What we were before was dead, alienated from God, and now because of the cross, we are adopted into the family if we repent and come to him, if we make that decision. We become heirs of everything that God wants to offer his family, including the hope of eternal life. God has eternal life secured because of the resurrection. And so because of the resurrection, we know we're going to be okay. We know we're good. No matter what we face, if we face a death of a loved one, it's hard, but we know because of the resurrection, we're going to be okay. If we're facing challenges in life and ridicule in life, we know because of the resurrection, there is a living hope, a new, a new hope that we look forward to, and we're going to be good. Because Jesus rose from the dead, it's covered. Death and sin have no power. Because he lives. Because he lives. And so we come to the last point. We looked at what we were before the cross. What we are when we repent and come to Jesus because of the cross. So then how do we live in light of the cross? What does that mean? Because it's more than just an intellectual assent to that, like I I mentioned. And there we come back to verses 1 and 2. And so we just full circle back to what Paul was saying. Because of what Christ has done in your life, we can live for him in everyday life. We should live for him in everyday life. The renewal from the cross gives us a new way of relating to people, a new way of acting. And because of the renovation done, we now have a new attitude out of which we act. We now have a new motivation out of which we treat people. And so our faith must show in our works in our life. And so the third thing we're remembering is how should we live in light of the cross and the empty tomb? And the answer is very specifically here. There's many more ways, but where where this passage is going, we need to remember that others need the same mercy that we were undeservably given. We need to remember that others need the same mercy that we experienced even though we didn't deserve it. In fact, we deserve punishment ourselves. And so I know we read these at the beginning, but read these in light of the cross and where we were and where God, what God renovated or renewed us to be. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. 
And this first section there has to do with how they interacted with authority, how they interacted with those over them. Now, keep in mind, the church is already being persecuted. And the goal here, the main thing is the gospel moving forward. And so Paul's saying, stop agitating things and be concerned with the gospel. Keep first things first. The idea here is to be loyal citizens, not causing political agitation, which would bring the gospel under suspicion, but to be obedient, to be, to conform to the regulation of civil authorities, not just doing your own thing, which is what we were in verse three. Not just doing our own thing, but remembering our standing before God, that we are heirs, that we have been given incredible mercy. And so Paul says this relationship starts to affect these relationships. Starts with authority and then he's going to talk to about other people. In fact, part of this, and, and this could be towards, towards society or, or community to other people, to be ready for every good work. The renewal gets us ready to do things that God wants us to do. We can move beyond ourselves and our selfish desires and proactively do good things for others and the community. So this talks about you know, being a good influence around us, being a positive influence on those around us. You know, so, so many times we can get so caught up in our own little lives, and Easter says, break out of that and start thinking of others like Christ did for you. Start modeling what he did for you, the, the great mercy you experienced, and give a little bit of that to others. So what we believe affects how we live. Now again, as we've talked in this last year, Paul isn't saying here to obey when we're asked to sin. But when it's not asked to sin, he's like, be submissive, come under leadership, be obedient, because that is going to be a good testimony. But to be ready for every good work, work for the good of society and his community. If Jesus died for me, surely I can go a little bit out of my way to help someone else that Jesus died for. He goes on then to talk about relationships within um, human, human relationships, within people, to speak evil of no one. Refrain from slander. Don't say things that harm other people because we're say- that's not showing mercy that, that we were shown first of all, but we're saying things about the people God wants to show mercy to that God sent his son to die on that cross for. And so let's talk to them like they're people God loved enough to die for. And so we should be inspecting all of our talk about each other. He says, speak evil of no one, not even those that oppose us, not even those of the opposite political party, not even those that we disagree with or that hurt us. He goes on to say, avoid quarreling. Be peaceable is what that literally means. These people need Jesus. Be gentle, be gracious to them because Jesus is going to take care of their rough edges and they need him. Show perfect courtesy toward people. You don't have to teach them a lesson through your lousy attitude. They need Jesus. Let him do the work. Instead, be considerate. Be able to go beyond ourselves, beyond our own self-centeredness and understand that these people are people that Jesus died for.
see a renewed life, the cross and the empty tomb reminds us that before the cross, we were sinners and we were destined for death. And because of the cross, when we, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become heirs, we become part of God's family, and we are renewed. It's the greatest after picture ever. But then how should we live? We should then show that mercy to others and show that grace to others. You know, this morning, I know that we have a lot of people here and a lot of people listening that are in all stages of their spiritual walk. And, and what, I, what I would ask you this morning to do is to think of where you're at and be honest with yourself. Be honest, because the truth of Scripture is laid out of what we were and where that leads to death and to punishment, what we can be because of the cross if we come and repent, and then how we should put that into practice. And at each of those stages, there can be a, a stop sign that is a problematic We can stop at verse 3 and say, you know what, I'm still going to just live for myself. I don't want to give up the things God might want to ask me to give up. I sort of like some of my sin, thank you very much. And, And we can sit there and deceive ourselves not seeing the path that that's going down and the damage that that will cause in our lives. And not understanding the free gift that God is offering through the cross and the empty tomb. And if you're there this morning, I challenge you to bust through that wall and to say, I'm going to take the chance on Jesus. And I'm going to understand that my, my ways, my sin, pursuing self hasn't worked yet. And deep down inside, even when we think, think, oh yeah, this is working great, deep down inside, we know there's more to life because we have a God-sized hole in our heart that is seeking satisfaction from the infinite creator of the world. And so inside, we know that these sinful ways aren't working. And I challenge you, stop trying the things that don't work. And give your life to Jesus. Accept what he did on the cross, hanging there, paying the price for my sin, for your sin. And say, I repent of that sin and I give my life to Jesus. And then the renovation project starts. And it's the best before and after ever. Some of us have, have accepted Christ. And some of us are, are here and we're faithful to, to do the things that we think makes us, us right with God. But we haven't seen that renewal in our lives. We haven't seen the Holy Spirit continue to help us grow and continue to change us because we think we're done. And my word for you is seek further renovation. Because, oh, we need the Holy Spirit to change our lives. We need His work. And don't just think, oh, I was saved, I'm good, but how can I grow this week? How can I serve God? And then finally, for all of us, are we putting it into practice? Do we live like a people amazed at God's mercy? Amazed at his grace? Blown away that we don't deserve it, but he gave it to us anyway? Blown away by the fact that on the cross he paid for every sin I ever have committed and ever will committed, and he still, knowing that, loved me and died on the cross for me? Oh, that changes how we treat others. Because then we begin to see others with the eyes of Christ. 
what might God do in their lives? And how might I be part of that? We are reborn and we are renewed. Let's live like a people that are different because he lives, because he changes things. I'd like to invite worship team to come up and there's a song that we sing called Death Was Arrested and I think the author of the song was reflecting on Titus 3 as, as he wrote it. Um, but we want to worship and start just worshiping some of these truths about being renewed and going from the before of death to the after of life in Christ and a renewed life in Christ. So let's stand together and worship our Savior. Amen. Hallelujah. He's alive. He's renewing us. Let's go live like it this week. Thank you for worshiping with us and celebrating with us. Happy Easter.